Brent Carroll has just returned from a 13-month trip of the Americas. His first trip, as a matter of fact, he's only been riding for three years. And we have some good insights, lessons, and tips from that coming up. Also, we have another rider skill segment with Brett Tax, Starting on Hills. Yes, the very thing that terrifies many. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Three years ago, Brent Carroll didn't own a motorcycle, and now he's just returned from a 13-month, 15-country trip through the Americas, and he says he's a changed person from it. Hmm. Well, that's a hard question to answer, actually. Uh, I'll do my best. My name is Brent Carroll. And I am originally from uh, Virginia, and uh, I worked as an engineer for several years. Brent, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. It is fantastic to be here with you today. So where are you right now? I'm actually sitting in Renton, Washington, just south of Seattle. And you've just come back from, well, the trip of your life. It was a life-changing trip. It was. And uh, I just got back a couple of weeks ago. You did 45,000 miles, which is uh, 72,400 kilometers, somewhere around there. 13 months, 15 countries. But three years ago, you didn't own a bike. 
So I did not own a motorcycle about three years ago. And uh, a friend of mine on Facebook posted a picture uh, of a camping trip that he and his girlfriend were doing, two up on a Triumph Tiger. And in one of those pictures, he had uh, filled up his panniers, his aluminum panniers with firewood. And to this day, I'm not sure what sparked an interest in me that would lead down this path, but I was intrigued. And uh, so I went off to research and find a motorcycle of my own to do the same sort of thing. Was it the firewood and the panniers? Was the idea of travel on the motorcycle? I mean, what, sir, what was it about it? So it's hard to say. I, I just found the picture adventurous, if you will. I've always been an adventurous, I've always had an adventurous spirit. And these, the idea of, of camping with your motorcycle really appealed to me. And I think it, in the initial stages anyway, that's what I was most interested in doing, getting a motorcycle, loading it up and heading off into the mountains to go camping for the weekend. So that got you to a BMW dealer? It got me to several dealerships, but uh, the last one I ended up uh, in was a BMW dealership. Oh, so you looked around. You, you didn't just go, I, I sort of thought you just went for this R1200 GS that you ended up buying, but you actually looked around at other bikes too. I did. I, I, I spent probably six to eight weeks um, researching the market. And uh, what I came to find is that the BMW had high marks for reliability and not being a mechanic. Uh, <laughs> that's what I went with. Was it after you bought that bike that you, you did some research and found that people were riding them around the world, or was it before? I was after. I, um, again, initially, the only idea I had in my mind was to load up the motorcycle, go riding, go camping briefly. Um, and then as I got to learn more and more about um, the genre, if you will, uh, these, the sort of, this sort of motorcycle has sort of a small niche in the market. And uh, that's when I started to learn that people don't just go out for the weekends. They go for extended times riding, you know, cross country and riding around the world. And um, the more I looked into it, uh, uh, I, I discovered Horizons Unlimited. And uh, that sort of opened the door. I, I discovered as I got deeper and deeper into the community that um, of the several groups that were out there that were involved with uh, quote-unquote adventure motorcycling, Horizons Unlimited seemed to have a pretty big following. And the things that people were talking about when they talked about Horizons Unlimited really resonated with me. Um, you know, like borders are only in your mind and uh, the only impossible journey is the one you never begin. And uh, so I set about to, to, to actually attend a meeting. And I attended my first meeting in Virginia in 2015 in, at Appomattox. It was their first meeting there. But you were no stranger to travel. I mean, you, you were in the Navy. You traveled in the Navy. You took vacations around. You, you'd been around the world, hadn't you? I did. I've, uh, and I spent 20 years in the Navy and visited lots of places. And I also took lots of vacations. But there, that to me, wasn't the same thing. Um, vacations, for example, are, are places that you, you know, you go and you pay lots of money to be catered to and you sort of turn off the world and relax. Uh, in, in the Navy, the places that I visited were uh, 
you know, for a weekend in some strange city that you sort of walked around in. Uh, but that to me was, again, different than traveling on your own on a motorcycle and visiting these places. Um, so I just got really interested in it. I got hooked, actually, after that initial meeting in Appomattox. Uh, I learned a lot. I met lots of people who'd actually done trips around the world. And uh, I left that weekend saying, I'm going to do this. I have to do this. And I didn't say one day. I said, I'm going to do this. And this isn't because your life was boring at that time. <laughs> this, is be, <laughs> this is because you got excited about the, the thrill of possibility, I guess, isn't it? It was a, it was a thrilling idea. It, was, uh, it kept me up at night thinking about it. Um, the, more, um, I, well, the more time I spent online following the adventures of other people who were, who were doing it. Uh, I, I was, I was counting the days until I could set off on my own adventure. And, uh, perhaps the most fun of this last two years was in that year of planning that I did for my trip. I had a lot of fun breaking down and, and, and trying to figure out, uh, how to make it fit in my life and how to make it something that would be successful. That sounds like the engineer and you breaking it down. As soon as you said break it down. And that's something you tried to lose on the trip, isn't it? You tried to lose that analytical, that, that planner in you. I had, uh, I had set out several goals for the trip, such as, you know, not racking up miles. That was never the goal. Um, staying off interstate highways uh, so that I could see you know, the smaller towns and such, staying away from um, those touristy areas where, you know, if you've been to some of those touristy areas, you know that they're, they're not very reflective of the countries that, they, that, they, uh, that they're in. Uh, but one of my goals was to sort of let go of, uh, I called myself anal, you know, wanting to be on top of every single detail and having everything planned out to the nth degree. And it took me a long time during my trip to sort of get away from that and to just sort of let go, if you will. And once I did let go, and I've heard this expressed by many other people as well, once you let go when you're traveling like this and you approach things much more in a much more open-minded and much more open-hearted way, the trip sort of blossoms for you. You really get to see and experience things that I think otherwise you wouldn't have if you were, if you were consumed with every detail and mitigating every risk, if you just sort of let go. It was so much better when I finally was able to do that. You know, that, that is an interesting thing to hear you say. And, and, I, and I have heard it before where people say about letting go is, you know, the real freedom. It's funny because we, we build our whole life around, as you said, not letting go, being in control, being on every detail, being able to plan and project things. As a matter of fact, our whole society is built on that. Yet every time you talk to someone who's broken away and thought, okay, I have to force myself to let go, to relinquish control is what you're doing. It seems to be the best thing that ever happened. It is. It's... Um... I've had the most interesting experiences during my trip when I was able to do that. It's um, I, moments of serendipity when you would meet people who you otherwise wouldn't because uh, perhaps you didn't plan where you were going to stay. So you were forced to talk to people and you were 
you know, forced to do some local research on the ground. And it, it just opens up, uh, it opens the world up for you when you're not shrouded in a plan that you feel like you have to keep. Let's go back a minute to you starting off. You said you spent a year planning. What were you doing? Ah, well, going back to the engineer in me, I developed a project plan with uh, hundreds and hundreds of lines. <laughs> I, again, I didn't know the first thing about, you know, letting go and just taking off on my motorcycle. Um, you know, I didn't know where I would go. I didn't know what I would need to take with me, uh, you know, just in terms to live like a tent, for example, or uh, the paperwork that I would need vaccinations. Um, and the more that, uh, you know, I sort of dug deeper and deeper into it, it turns out there's quite a bit you have to do. It's uh, not the least of which is the fact that I quit a very good paying job and moved out of a house that we'd lived in for 14 years, um, sort of setting my life up uh, financially to do this was, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice. And, um, in the end, I think the most important lesson I learned, uh, the most important preparation that I made was learning Spanish. Because after I decided to go to Central and South America, I knew that was the language there. And I wanted to be able to communicate, uh, not just to get things that I needed or get where I needed to go, but uh, also to have meaningful, substantive conversations with people who live there. Because I was very interested in learning about the places that I went, their cultures, um, and uh, you know how they viewed the world, and so on. So, as far as pre-trip planning goes, the language was the, the biggest payoff, I guess, for you. It was a huge payoff. In retrospect, it would have been a completely different trip, not having uh, had the ability to speak Spanish. And I'm not saying I was uh, I was fluent, but uh, I was certainly. Uh, at a point where I could have good conversations with people. And one of the favorite parts of my day, any day in Central and South America, were, were conversing with someone who lived there and they saw me as this, you know, this white American. And But when, as, as soon as I spoke Spanish, their, their demeanor completely changed. You could see their eyes light up. You could see interest uh, in their face, that they really wanted to talk to you. And uh, again, I, the Spanish really made the trip for me. You departed from an HU meet. Is that how you started it? Uh, day one, I, I had planned that from the year previously when I said I was going to do this. Uh, day one of my trip was at the Horizons Unlimited meeting in Appomattox. And uh, I, I was a, <laughs> they gave me a fantastic send-off. I was super excited and uh, uh, emotions were pretty high because just a couple of weeks prior to that, I'd quit my job. And of course, we decided to move out to Seattle. Uh, so yes, day one was on at a HU meeting in Virginia. It's a big step. Uh, it, was a, <laughs> it was a huge step. I recall thinking three or four days into the trip after the HU meeting, asking myself, Brent, what? And the heck have you just done? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if that if that came up because it has to. I mean, you just sort of dumped your life at that point to go off and start something brand new. 
I did. And uh, the engineer in me was rolling around in my head. You know, you may not have just made the best decision. Let's let's just let this play out for a while and see what happens. Because all along I knew after the trip there'd be an end to it. I, I'm not I wasn't planning on an indefinite, you know, around the world traveling, you know, like a, you know, Simon and Lisa, for example. But uh, I knew there'd be a day when I landed back here in Seattle. And the first thing I'd have to do was crack open the laptop and start looking for a job. Uh, but I tried really hard during the trip not to think about it. Uh, matter of fact, folks would ask me, you know, what are you going to do afterwards? And that would be my response. This is honestly, I can't even say the word that starts with the letter W. I don't want to. Uh, I'll think about that when I'm, when I get back. <laughs> You got accepted as being a Jupiter's traveler. You applied to that. What was that about? Uh, again, during during my year of preparation, I, I didn't know anything about uh, the Ju- Jupiter's travelers. And uh, one of my preparations during that year was uh, seeking out folks who'd done it. And, you know, uh, the, the long way round series, the long way down series, so on and so forth. I, there was a reference to Ted Simon. And so I went and I bought his book and read Jupiter's travels and was just completely in awe. I was amazed by the, the, the openness in which Ted shared his experiences traveling around the world. And as I learned more about Ted, I discovered the Ted Simon Foundation. And everything in the mission statement of uh, the foundation resonated with me perfectly. Uh, I knew when I went out and uh, traveled through these foreign places that I wanted to not only learn about them, and but to be very open and honest in communicating what I found. And the, 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 the foundation obviously exists to support folks who are willing to do that. And I immediately, that day, I applied. And uh, several weeks went by, and I heard back from Ian that I'd been accepted. And it turned out to be just like a week prior to when my trip started. And I was super excited about that. <laughs> What did it do for you on the trip? Did, did, did it make the, the trip a different experience for you, being a Jupiter's traveler? It did because it led to lots of conversations. I should say, being a Jupiter's traveler's, traveler led to a lot of conversations. Um, I, not only did I have the opportunity to meet lots of locals in these countries, I also met lots of fellow travelers. Lots of fellow travelers, many more than I thought I'd meet. And... Uh, Almost every one of those conversations, the, the, the topic of the Ted Simon Foundation came up because I, I happen to have a sticker uh, on my windshield. And uh, as it turns out that most people who are traveling like this are also sharing their story, you know, not just with, uh, you know, family and loved ones back home. But, they're, but you know, there's this consensus that they want to share um, – you know, the, the story of their travels through foreign places as well. So it was always a great conversation about what the Ted Simon Foundation can do. You headed off from uh, the hub meet and you went where? So the general route that I took um, can broadly be described as a trans 
can. I sort of left Virginia, went to Newfoundland, uh, spent three weeks in, uh, or a couple of weeks in Newfoundland, and then um, headed across Canada and the U.S. and then up to Alaska. And uh, I made it all the way to Dead Horse in the middle of July, um, and then from there made a U-turn and generally followed the Pan American Highway all the way down to Ushuaia in Argentina, where I made another U-turn, came back to Buenos Aires, and then uh, flew the bike and I flew the bike and me back to the United States. When on the trip did you really feel like you were in tune with what you were doing? So I told you the story a minute ago about three or four days into it, asking myself, what the heck are you doing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it took several weeks. Um, and there's a learning curve associated with this sort of travel if you're just starting. Um, one of the most important lessons I learned le early on is that I was carrying too much stuff. And I think it's a common problem or a common fault that most people have. Um, and it's not that I couldn't handle the bike with all the stuff on it. I think the GS's only fault, the R1200 GS's only fault is that it can carry too much stuff. Um, but it was a learning curve, learning uh, what, what I actually needed. Uh, and, and that was all boiled down in the fact that um, where, it, where the rubber meets the road, per se, is that when you have to unpack and pack every day, the fewer things that you have, the better. So that was really the first thing that uh, helped me get more comfortable is, is losing a lot of stuff that I thought I needed. Lois Price did a good chat about stuff and her trip and um, her trips and saying that you carry all of the stuff for insurance. It's like an insurance policy against things that might go wrong. And when you realize there's a Walmart every, you know, two or three miles, you're, you're never in need of anything really to be carrying. You can pick up something. So losing all this, this stuff, this baggage, this insurance baggage, that made the trip go better. Um, the second thing I learned was that it can be very, quite tiring. As part of my trip preparations, I spent nearly a year getting in shape and getting in shape, meaning I was working out every day. I wanted to leave in top physical form. So I had pretty good stamina, but still days of traveling, your, your brain is just taking in so much information and uh, the physical act of riding. And after several days, you're just exhausted. And so you need to program in breaks. So I think once I got over those two things, uh, I, I felt more in tune with the trip. I was able to take in more, if you if if that makes sense. I, it, when the brain was rested, it just seemed that the experiences were more rich. So, what did you do? Run into a pattern where you're you're going for a few days, taking a day off? I think that was that's probably about right. Uh, two or three or four days, and then stay in one place two nights. Um, I did have a, a couple of prolonged breaks during my trip uh, when I. Got to Colombia. I, I fell in love with Colombia. And uh, even more so, I fell in love with Medellin when I arrived there. And I ended up staying in Medellin for three weeks. And I signed up for some advanced Spanish classes. And uh, that was like a vacation from the trip, if you will. Um, the second big break I had, and it's not really a break, it's a break from riding, but uh, when I arrived in Quito in Ecuador, Tracy, my better half, came down and for a month. She spent a month with me uh, out of Quito, I should say, because in that month we visited the Galapagos Islands together. 
And we also visited the Sacred Valley in Peru together to see Machu Picchu and all of those things. So, so I had some, I, I feign to call them vacations, but I had some time off the bike uh, that helped, I think. I think you have to take breaks. One of the things that you said that you learned is, is the fact that the world is amazingly beautiful is what you said. It's sort of a, a jaw-dropping beauty. Sure. I spent most of my life on the East Coast of the United States. And I, although I did travel around the world a pretty good deal, I didn't spend a lot of time in places like the southwestern United States or in uh, you know, British Columbia or western Alberta and British Columbia and Canada. Um, and when I went through places like this uh, for the first time, I, first I questioned my patriotism as an American for never having seen these places uh, because they were just so – beautiful. They were majestic. It was uh, almost, being there was almost religious. It was so uh, just amazingly breathtaking. And um, as I as I continued to travel, uh, I kept asking myself, well, what can top this? What can top this? So, uh, you know, you go from Glacier National Park in Montana, and then you go north up through, uh, you know, Banff and I still probably say, I, I can't believe it. It's actually getting better. How is this possible? And uh, and the same thing happened as I traveled south through uh, Central and South America. I just I just kept kept seeing these variations on a theme of the world's natural beauty, but it never got tiring. It, every place that you visited was, for its own reasons, just uh, amazing to to see and you know to have the privilege to be there. It's, you know, beside my motorcycle, uh, or to ride on my motorcycle through these places, I, I was beside myself. I, I was giddy. I was laughing in my helmet. I was, it was, it was just, I unbelievable. You had at one point a, what you describe as a bad week in Guatemala. I saw the photos actually on the, on Facebook of your dented panniers and uh, the the fact that you'd had a you'd had an accident. Yeah, that, I think. People have asked me several times, you know, you know, what's the worst thing that ever happened? Uh, I remember prior to my trip trying to put at ease concerns from family and friends about all of these dangerous places that I was going. And I always told them I'm not I was never worried about that part of it uh, at all, really. Um, the thing that concerned me the most was 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 riding in strange places. I as as I said, I didn't have a lot of experience. Even off road, I didn't have a lot of experience. But so people ask me, what was the worst part of, you know, the the trip? What was the worst thing that happened to you? And for me, it was one week in Guatemala, one week out of thirteen months. Um, I had just visited uh, the Tikal ruins in northern Guatemala, and it was a hot day. It was muggy, humid. And you have to, if you've been there, you have to, you know, you have to walk through the jungle quite a bit to get to the ruins. Well, there were mosquitoes everywhere and I was getting eaten alive. Um, well, several days later, I was in uh, Antigua in Guatemala. It's a beautiful city uh, near Lake Aretlan. And I started to feel bad and I started to feel worse every day. And after two or three days, I decided to go to see a doctor uh, and I described my symptoms and the doctor says that, well, it sounds like dengue fever. Okay. That's not so good. 
they prescribed some blood tests. I had the blood test done. It turned out to be not dengue, but Zika, Zika virus. And uh, I, I well, at least we know what it is. Now, how do we fix it? And uh, bed rest was the only cure and lots of fluids. And uh, so after five or so days in bed, I said, well, I feel okay enough. I need to get up and keep moving. And with the goal of reaching El Salvador, uh, I'm riding through uh, Antigua, which is full of cobblestone, very narrow streets. And uh, I got T-boned by a car. And it threw me off the motorcycle. Luckily, I was unhurt. Uh, the motorcycle sustained quite a bit of damage to the panniers, and uh, the, the car was uh, also damaged. And uh, what made matters worse is it turns out it was my fault. I mm -hmm. was at fault in the accident, and um, so I had to pay for everything. Um, what happened when you, like, I know, I know you went through, you missed a stop sign, you went through, but what happened after the, after the car hits you? You're on the ground, things start to unfold. So most interesting about this whole thing, and it's true of every place that I've been, that there are people who are willing to help. Uh, as I'm laying there on my back after the accident on this cobblestone street, my eyes are closed. I'm sort of wiggling my fingers and toes, you know, th hoping that I'm okay. And I, as I slowly open my eyes, there's no less than half a dozen folks standing around me looking down saying, are you okay? Are you okay? And uh, I'd lift my head up just gently and I see another set of folks lifting my motorcycle up and sort of pushing it to the side. And uh, I said, well, just let me lay here for a minute. And this one gentleman leaned down and he held my hand. And I remember wrapping my arm around his leg as he's laying there. Because you see, and he was kept saying to me, and this is all happening in Spanish, which is another reason I was very thankful to understand Spanish. He was just telling me, to just lie still. You know, it's okay. You know, uh, the ambulance is coming. And uh, so I laid there for several minutes uh, and uh, finally decided – I, I thought I was okay and got up and there was the ambulance and they checked me out. And, uh, it was an older woman who was driving the car and she had called her son to, to come to the scene to help her with the situation and nicest people ever. And they're talking to me, asking me if I'm okay. And, and, uh, we go through the whole process of the, the insurance adjuster has to come. The police have to come. And it uh, took several hours to straighten out. But uh, in the end, it, it was all fine. I got the bike fixed. Uh, I was fine. Uh, but for, for, for a good week there in Guatemala, things weren't going well for me. And it's, it was the only time during my trip that I actually considered making a U-turn and mm. saying, wait a second, what am I getting myself into? By this point, I'd only been through Canada, the U.S., uh, Mexico, and Belize. I'd only been through you know, just a small handful of countries. I was just starting to get into the, the unknown, if you will. And, uh, but I kept going. Why? Uh, why did I keep going? It was, I think maybe I had set a goal to reach the most extreme points along the Pan American highway and experience these cultures. And I'm afraid I would have regretted turning around when I was okay, when I was okay, the bike was okay. It had to get fixed, but it was okay. Um, at this point I'd been traveling for four or five months. So I, I felt like I knew how to do it. So at this point it was just a, it was just a, an evaluation of my 
of, of my determination. Um, Did you feel the accident happened because you're in Guatemala or is it just one of those things that happens? So it's just a, I think it was just a rare thing. I consider myself particularly now to be a very good rider. My head's on a swivel. I'm very cautious. Um, it was just, it was being, uh, it was being sick. I was still sick and maybe not a hundred percent and, uh, just, uh, having one unlucky moment, I think. Well, we're talking about riding skills before you left. One of the, pre- one of the preparation things you did was you took an off-road course. I did as I, <laughs> I didn't own a motorcycle three years ago and, uh, you know, riding really appealed to me and I did it. But then as I was learning, about all of these places that I might be interested in going, sometimes there's the road runs out. There's, I mean, and I mean by that, the asphalt or the bitumen runs out. So you're, you have to ride on dirt and gravel and maybe even mud and things like that. So that scared me a little bit, to be quite frank with you, um, because I had no experience riding a motorcycle off-road, none. Sure, and an R twelve hundred is not a small bike. I mean, that, that's a big bike not. to jump onto, and a, a big bike to fall off of mm-hmm. <laughs> or pick up. Um, so I decided, as part of my project planning, that I would uh, learn some skills. So I did two things actually uh, with the BMW. I I, I went to their off road course that they teach. The one I went to was in uh, South Carolina, and. Uh, I, I, it, I was still a new rider and, uh, I was scared to death riding around on this course and maybe didn't get as much out of it as I could, but I did learn a lot of skills taking the course and, uh, I, I thought it was well worth it. Um, interestingly, I'll, I'll, I'll finish that story in a second, but the second thing I did during my preparations was, uh, I bought a, a, a smaller dirt bike. I bought a little KTM 350 to just go rip around and, and, and get used to what it felt like having a motorcycle move out from underneath you or move around underneath you. Um, and I sort of kicked myself for waiting that long in my life to get a small dirt bike because it was so much fun. I'd never had that much fun just squirting around on a small motorcycle. So I think those two things helped my confidence quite a bit. Um, I know I recall quite vividly when I was in Dawson, uh, city, and I was heading west, and I knew the next morning I was going to get up and ride the top of the World Highway, which, um, as I remember, it's probably 50 miles, 70, 80 kilometers worth of dirt, a dirt road, and being very nervous about it because at, up to that point, I hadn't been riding. Everything I'd been riding on was asphalt. And uh, I remember not being able to sleep the night before because I was so worried about this dirt road. And it turned out that it was fine. It was absolutely fine. I had no problem until I crossed the border into the U.S. when it changes into the Taylor Highway. Now, the top of the world highway, Canadians, you guys are doing great maintaining that road. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Americans, you're doing terrible maintaining the Taylor Highway because it was terrible. It was a terrible road. And uh, several times I thought I was going to come off. But I didn't. And in the well, back of my what's head, what's our conditions? Well, it was uh, it was dry that day, but uh, it was it's a terribly uh, it's dirt road, but it's terribly uh, uh, potholed and uh, lots of rocks on it, and, um, and there's two way traffic and it's narrow. And uh, 
And I was holding on for my life, but mm. <laughs> probably not literally, but I was scared. <laughs> because uh, in addition to this, I, I had learned about the Dalton Highway. And to get into Dead Horse, you have to go up the Dalton Highway. And since, since even before I left on my trip, I had been worried about the Dalton Highway. And uh, I had met another person online on Facebook about uh, about the trip, and it turns out he was leaving from Vancouver on his indefinite around-the-world trip, Brian Thiessen, and he was heading north to Alaska, and we coordinated to meet in um, in Fairbanks and to ride the Dalton Highway together because both of us, neither of us, I should say, were very experienced in off-roads, and uh, uh, we had an easy time. It was like what uh, – it was dry that day mm -hmm. that we went up to, to Dead Horse. It was – it was warm, uh, and both of us wondered, you know, what's the big deal about? And, and um, so I was feeling very confident until I stayed in Dead Horse for a couple of days, and it rained, it and it was raining rain, yes. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a totally different picture, isn't it? <laughs> and the temperature dropped uh, to uh, just above freezing as we were leaving Dead Horse. And uh, if you've been up there in the summer, you know about construction. It just makes whatever road it's on. 10 times worse. And we squished and slided and, and held on for dear life for, you know, the whole way back. Both of us came off, uh, at, at, at different points. And, uh, I remember, and I say this jokingly, but I think I even teared up because I, I thought about this 700 kilometers of dirt road that I have to go on and I'm just starting and it's like this and I'm never going to make it. And uh, it's so stressful, isn't it? I mean, you know, you're, <laughs> it when, was you're stressful. when you're fighting the bike and uh, but but you're a different rider now, though. I'm telling you, um, after 13 months of, of riding on roads like that and um, throughout North and Central, uh, North Central and South America, I'm, I'm honestly not afraid of any road now. If it's if it's labeled as a road on a map, I'll figure out how to get by it. So that brings me uh, back to the BMW off-road school. Um, I decided with this new experience, once I was back in the U.S., to take the course again. And I wanted, and I did. I took it again about a month ago, or maybe six weeks ago. This isn't before your trip has ended. This is just when you managed to get back into the U.S. You still were traveling more. I was still traveling, right? And um, with my newfound experience and confidence, I wanted to take the course again so that I could get as much of it out, uh, uh, get as much out of the course as I could. And this time I, there were no fears. Uh, every challenge I was on top of, um, I, I put my full self into, you know, maximizing the learning opportunities that were in front of me. And it, I knew then, and that's when I developed this idea that I'm not afraid of any road now, that with this motorcycle, as big as it is, the R1200GS, I think is a very capable uh, motorcycle. Uh, it's very comfortable on the road, and it's extremely capable in the right hands, off-road. And uh, I'm glad I chose it. I chose it for several other reasons, but I'm glad I chose this motorcycle for the trip. Your best week was crossing the Darien. <laughs> I had been reading so many reports about people crossing the, the Darien Gap. Um, you mean bad reports? No. Um, well, maybe 
not good or bad, but just the um, the adventures that took place mm-hmm. in getting from Panama to Colombia and the wide variety of ways that people were doing it. Uh, so in investigating ways to cross, I said, well, you can fly across, you know, you can put it in a shipping container and fly it across, or you can hop on a sailboat because, you know, obviously there's no road connecting Panama and Colombia. And as I began to compile these stories about people taking, uh, you know, getting across the stalwart, uh, the sailboat, the, st- the German uh, sailboat stalwart uh, kept coming up over and over. And as I read those stories, I said, that's what I want to do. And so several months prior, four or five months prior, not long after I'd left for my trip, I booked a, a crossing on the Starrett. And uh, so that's something that I had really looked forward to. I didn't look forward to having a date on my calendar so many months in advance that I had to be in this place at this time. Mm. But uh, I got over that. That sort of rubs you the wrong way after it, getting uh, into the loop of traveling or, or the rhythm of traveling. It does. Uh, any hard dates like that tend to, you know, stifle the mood a little bit. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I, I made it to, to Panama City. And um, keep in mind that I was delayed in Guatemala for over a week because of uh, the Zika and the accident. So I sort of had to rush through uh, several of the Central American countries. But I made it to Panama City, and I ended up booking into a hostel there that the, the, the crew of the Stalrat recommended. And it turns out that everybody did that that was taking the Stalrat. So we were all there together, all these, these, uh, you know, these overland motorcycle people. Uh, I, I, I had bumped into several people along the way, but I, this group, uh, you know, we were – confined to a space for, you know, over a week uh, in the hostel and on the Starrett. So it was one of the best bonding experiences of, you know, people of like-minded adventure spirit. And uh, it was great. I made, uh, I have made lifelong friends from the people I met during that week. And we just, I, I say it was the best week because we just had the most fun. We, we weren't on the motorcycles. We were, it was another vacation, if you will. You know, we didn't have to worry about um, crossing Central American borders, if, which if anyone's done that knows that's that's not fun. Um, we were just in relaxation mode, getting fed and uh, and hanging out on a sailboat in the San Blas Islands for several days. It was uh, it was amazing. Plus, we were all looking forward to South America. So we, we all got to sit around and share our, you know, our, our conceptions about what that would be like. And uh, it was just a fascinating time. It was a fascinating time. And, uh, you know, once we all sort of split up after uh, in Cartagena, we, we created a Facebook uh, group that we all sit and chat, you know, about our travels with privately. Uh, and... Uh, it was, it, was, it was fantastic. And again, these people are going to be friends uh, for the rest of my life. That's a great thing to do. I never thought about that. You set up a, a private uh, Facebook group and it's just you guys, just the, the group of you who met together. It's a use of Facebook. I just, I, I guess I never thought of. Yeah, it seems to work. We, we still keep uh, tabs on uh, where everybody is and what's, what everybody's up to. And <laughs> it's great. 
You were traveling alone, except for the time where you said your girlfriend came to spend a, a month with you. And otherwise, and, and I mean, you know, you connect with other travelers as everyone does um, when you're out there. But did you find yourself getting lonely? Uh, I would I would not say I was uh, lonely. Um, I had moments um, where I felt alone, which there is you know there's a distinction there where you know lonely or you're, you know you're sort of by yourself wishing somebody was there. Where being alone was you're literally in the middle of nowhere and no one else is around, and so you are completely and utterly left to your own devices. <laughs> and uh, the, that happened the very first time in northern Maine as I was headed towards Canada. Uh, I remember almost running out of gas and um, realizing that, you know, I hadn't seen anybody in an hour or more, you know, houses, cars, people, or anything. And this moment, that, that was my first moment of aloneness. I said, look, you're, you're alone. You're doing this trip by yourself. And uh, you better pay attention because <laughs> there's no one right here to help you. And um, that happened a couple, of more, a couple more times, uh, particularly as I got north through British Columbia and the Yukon and Alaska. I mean, there are vast stretches of highway there. Um, and as an early riser, I would always be up early in the morning. Uh, but there are stretches of highway there where you, you don't see anyone or anything for, for you know, maybe 100 miles. And um, early on, I recall being quite worried and scared even that, well, gosh, if something goes wrong, uh, the engineer and me better start thinking about ways to mitigate these these potential problems. And, um, and I did that, uh, uh frequently, uh, more so than I needed. But as I was mentioning earlier about letting go of anxieties and fears, uh, this happened too with, uh, with being worried about being alone. Um, I realized a, the motorcycle has proved, uh, very reliable. It starts up every morning. It gets me where I need to go. Uh, you know, I, 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 I eat well, I get lots of sleep. Uh, you know, I, I don't drive through, uh, situations I know I couldn't handle. So the engineer in me realized that I listen, you've already, you've already come to the realization that all of these worries and fears that you have are, are taken care of. So I let go of those. And again, when I let go of those, it's almost like new doors opened. Um, you know, as a writer, you know, when you're writing and you're not worrying about those things, you're paying attention to precisely and, uh, and solely what's around you, uh, you know, the beauty of it. And uh, so, again, uh, I was never lonely. Uh, I had lots of connections on Facebook. I talked to Tracy every single day. Uh, I met people on the road. Uh, but I did have moments of aloneness, which in the end turned out to be OK. It's um, it's a bit of vulnerability, isn't it? Uh, very vulnerable, and uh, it, and there's there's really two sides to that coin. I think if um, when you when you travel this way, particularly by yourself through strange places, as I said earlier, being vulnerable is actually an asset because it opens you up. Um, I was never uh, uh, you know uh, 
a very outgoing person prior to my trip. But I learned that being vulnerable and outgoing were necessary ingredients to traveling like this. If you want to have a good, rich experience, I mean, you want to be, you want to be open-minded and open-hearted and vulnerable and, uh, and be able to approach people so that you can have meaningful conversations and learn things about them. Um, so in that, in that sense, vulnerability is, is a very good thing. The, the, the other side of that coin, the vulnerability of knowing that you're completely self-dependent um, turns out to be uh, not entirely true. I mean, if you've got a way to communicate with people, um, you, you're never completely by yourself. Um, but knowing that, you know, at any instant, uh, you could have a blowout or, or all of those problems I was just talking about. Uh, riding the motorcycle, slipping on gravel or whatever, that vulnerability, it heightens your senses uh, to a large degree. And um, which is also, I think, can be a good thing if you learn to manage that stress in health, healthy ways. Um, I spent a lot of time reflecting on on days in which I thought, um, uh, you know, I, I had a, a scary moment or uh, – uh, or something happened that maybe I wasn't uh, prepared for, for example. So, uh, yeah, vulnerability is, a, I think, is a, you know, multidimensional. And I, I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It turned out to be fantastic for me. I learned a lot. I learned a lot being vulnerable. A newspaper did an article about you, and I think in that article you told them that it was a life changer. What do you mean by that? So it's I, I still reflect on this quite a bit about, how to articulate best this trip has changed me. Um, there's some there's some very clear surface reasons that I, I can make the claim. One is I've become much more patient as a human being. Um, the United States, or maybe North America as a whole, is a is a very fast-paced society. Everything moves very quickly. Information's at your your fingertips to make decisions. Uh, no one likes long lines, so on and so forth. Um, as you travel south, uh, particularly uh, in in central in South America, for me, things slow down quite a bit, and uh, and and I mean that no one seems societally, no one seems to be in a big hurry. Um, so those norms that you might be used to in the United States, getting things quickly and so on and so forth, just do not happen there. And at first, I recall, you know, having some level of frustration. But when I realized that's just the way it is, I got very used to being patient. And um, as it turns out, the patience didn't necessarily deal just with having to wait for things. But patience also meant, um, you know, struggling through uh, conversations in Spanish, for example. You know, I said I wasn't fluent. Uh, although uh, I, I knew enough to get by, uh, you know, being patient and, and hearing someone out and trying to really and trying to flesh out the, the real meaning of what they're trying to tell me, uh, I've developed a patience for people in general this way uh, that I didn't have before. Um, so, you know, that helped. That help, has helped me a lot since I've been back. Um, uh, this reminded me of something I learned in grade school. I, I was learning about the theory of relativity, and uh, the teacher said, you know, when, when, when humans, when we look down at, an, at um, say, a snail, 
we see it as barely moving, but the snail sees us as zipping around, you know, almost ghost-like. And the same could be said, she said, of us looking at a fly. We see the fly is buzzing around and we can barely keep focus on it, but the fly sees us as standing still. And uh, so that resonated with me when I got back to the U.S. I said, gosh, everybody is in such a hurry. And, uh, you know, having forgotten, I guess, that, that I had gotten quite used to things moving slowly. Um, so patience was a big one for me. Um, I think the second and most important, and we've, we've talked about this uh, some already, is just, just being open-minded and open-hearted and, and slowing down a bit to see what's around you. Um, I had, uh, I ran into a lot of, uh, uh, diverse cultures. There are a lot of diverse cultures in Central and South America. And, um, the thing that most people had in common, you know, that were the same things that we have here in the U S or Canada, you know, people want, people want to be happy and care for their families and so on and so forth. That's the same everywhere that I went. And, uh, you know, once you get past that, if you're patient enough to get past that and open-minded enough to get past that, then you see that you do end up seeing that we're not all on alike, uh, not on alike. We're all alike. <laughs> uh, so I've, I'm applying those new filters that I have in the U.S. Uh, now that I'm back home in the U.S. Uh, everything from looking at Facebook to having conversations with people Um those two things are different than me now. They're just they're they're chemically they're wired in different differently in my head now. Will that stay? I I, I hope I really do hope so. I hope I don't mm. get jaded. <laughs> well, I mean, I just think it's so easy because I was going to say, do, do you think you could learn this stuff without leaving the states? Could you have learned that without doing a trip like this? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think that the experience of traveling and living in these countries for, that were foreign to me and really getting to know cultures and the people who lived in them, um, that's one way to do it. Maybe the most efficient way to do it in terms of, of uh, learning to feel that way um, uh, but can you read it from a book? I I don't know. I I think the immersion, firsthand experience, being vulnerable in strange places, is is a, is definitely a way to do it. Whether you can do it different ways, I don't know. When you were planning to go, I think you estimated you were going to spend fifty dollars a day. You were going to do one hundred and twenty-five miles a day, which is about two hundred kilometers a day. Um, you ended up being, uh, I think, 166 miles a day, 267 kilometers a day. But did you find that everything that you'd planned sort of got shaken up and flipped upside down and turned inside out? <laughs> well, I did set several goals. It's funny. I was just looking at my goals today prior to talking to you. And uh, I set the goal of 125 miles a day or, say, 200 kilometers a day just to, to ensure that uh, I wasn't in a hurry. And uh, I achieved that goal. I wasn't in a hurry. Um, I ended up actually returning from the trip sooner than I thought, uh, but still got to see everything, uh, nearly everything I wanted to see. Uh, the budget. Wow. Um, so here's the thing with a budget. And from my perspective, I met lots of travelers on the road and they ran the spectrum from their modes 
uh, of traveling. And that included how they, uh, they lived and they, they budgeted their, their travels. Um, on one end, uh, I would say you have, um, you know, the foragers who, who can wild camp everywhere they go, set up a tent behind a telephone pole and they're happy, uh, to, uh, buying and preparing their own food on the motorcycle to maintaining their own motorcycle. Um, that's on one end of the spectrum. And I think if you travel this like that, you can do it very economically, uh, much, much cheaper than the way I did it, which I think is on the other end of the spectrum. Um, in the U.S. and Canada, I did camp a lot. But once I entered Mexico, uh, I, the the cost of living was just so inexpensive that I decided to stay in hotels and eat in restaurants and so on and so forth. Um, but I got so used to that, that by the time I reached Chile and Argentina, which are extremely expensive uh, places to travel through, uh, I, my budget was completely out the window. Um, because you're looking for hotels and, and nice meals, nice meals and hotels. I was. And, uh, so could I have camped? I, I had everything with me to camp. I ended up only camping twice, uh, in Chile. Um, uh, I could have camped a lot more, but I just got into this mode where I preferred after a day's riding to have a roof over my head and a hot shower and so on and so forth. Uh, so the budget, I was completely off on, on the budget and it was mainly because I had in mind initially that I would be camping more and it turns out I didn't. Mm. Um, I also had, uh, some major expenses that I didn't plan for at the beginning of the trip. I, Tracy and I had decided to do the Galapagos during the trip. Uh, and the Galapagos are very expensive to travel to. Um, and then the accident, I didn't expect the accident, which was very expensive. <laughs> mm. Uh, but so I had some expenses in there. Maintaining the motorcycle was quite expensive as well. I maintained it at its service intervals at, every, at BMW dealerships. So that too was quite expensive. If you were to depart for the, for another trip right now, what would be completely different? What, what sort of things, I mean, not a, a whole huge list, but what sort of things would be completely different? Um, so if, if, uh, if you mean applying lessons learned from this trip, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would do it on the same bike. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to take that bike anywhere. I know there's lots of arguments for smaller and lighter, uh, but I would take the same bike. I would take a lot less stuff than I took last time. Um, I think I would also continue on this continuum that I was on during the trip of letting go more and, um, and trying to plan less and just be more freewheeling. I think if I did another trip tomorrow, those are the first two things, or the first three things I would think about. I think that's it, though. That's, those are the major changes that I, I can think of off the top of my head. You have some other things that you, you noted that you learned about uh, or learned while on your trip, like um, the people that you meet. So I met lots of people during the trip. Uh, and those are in two categories, really, fellow travelers and then, uh, you know, people, uh, locals that lived in these countries. Um, um, as I mentioned a minute ago, the people that I met along the road traveling, uh, just the best people ever. And the greatest uh, variety of stories of what got them there and 
what they were trying to get out of their trips. Um, and the second category were, were people that I met along the way. And um, I had prior to my trip um, uh, this idea that the world is actually full of good, purposeful, thriving uh, you know, people happy people, just like we are here in the U.S., and, and um, which is sort of completely against the dogma of what most people in the U.S. anyway think of other places. And so um, in, when I first entered Mexico, I had some anxieties. And the, and, the, and the first thing that I met with after crossing the border are smiles. Hmm. Everyone's happy. I, I, I had a hard time figuring out why. Why is everyone so happy in Mexico? And then you look around and you hear the music and you, and you see the colors everywhere. And then you learn about the richness of their, uh, the richness of their cultures. And you talk to people and it's not hard to f- figure out why. They, they just, they love life. And uh, I had the same sort of anxieties as did several other folks about entering Colombia. And it was like a repeat of what had happened in Mexico. I entered Colombia uh, which has a very bloodied uh, recent history, and uh, turns out it's the same thing. Everybody's happy. Everybody's smiling. It's a, it's like vibes that you can feel, and uh, very welcoming and inviting people. Um, even to the point where people would go out of their way to tell you the story about their country and how it is today. Uh, as opposed to what they believe I might think of it based on their history. Hmm. And uh, I found that fascinating. I, that, that, as an American, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine doing that to a foreigner who comes into the country. Yeah. But I ran into these people everywhere. Every conversation seemed to include some treatise on the current state of their country and how good it is and have you visited this, this, and this, and it's not like it used to be. It's very interesting to me. What happens next, Brent? Great question. So as I, I, I as a next step, I've got to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> that terrible word that you've been avoiding for the past 13 months. You're going to have, uh, now will you go back to the, doing the same thing or now is your thought process changed? You're looking for something different. Well, it's, it's, it's actually interesting that you asked that because I said several times during my trip, I, I couldn't see myself returning to, sort of a nine to five office job. And, uh, you know, the human biped form just wasn't, isn't meant for that sort of mentality. Um, and believe me, that still appeals to me. But, uh, as I'm dipping my toes back in the job market, there aren't too many that are willing to pay me, you know, to ride my motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a tough one, isn't it? (laughs) Right. So, yes, I'll probably end up uh, entering the same field um, in engineering, uh, you know, large-scale IT project management, that kind of thing. And uh, the, the great thing is that the Seattle area is, is ripe for that kind of uh, work, uh, which is one of the reasons we decided to move here. Uh, but uh, one thing that uh, I will continue doing is dreaming about the next big adventure. And uh, where, wherever that will be, I, I don't know yet. The book is not written. Brent, it sounds like just an incredible adventure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. It was very, very good to be here talking to you today.
And I've been speaking with Brent Carroll, who, as you heard, just freshly returned from his trip and is trying to find his way back into normal life. You can find out more about Brent's adventures and uh, see some videos that he's done as well on his website, www.lovinglivingadventuring.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. We're going to take a short break and be right back with the Rider Skill segment with Brett Tax, starting on a hill. Nothing beats using quality products on your bike for many reasons. Now, I know you can get away with some inexpensive parts in some cases, but not when it comes to foot pegs. For foot pegs, you want ultra strong, durable pegs like the IMS products line of foot pegs. IMS products has been in business since the 70s, and they've won a a solid reputation built on quality through producing parts for racers. Now, look, there's a lot more to consider with foot pegs than, than just the width. You know, just going to buy a foot peg, you don't want to just go out and buy a wider peg. IMS uses cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat treating, and they're made in the U.S. They're built in the U.S. under strict manufacturing guidelines. But on top of that, IMS also uses their 30-plus years experience in building race gear. And you know that many times, that's the foundation for great consumer products. It comes right from the, the racers themselves that beat these products. See for yourself the full line of IMS foot pegs at www.imsproducts.com. And do us a favor, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now for another one of our exclusive rider skill segments where we get methods, tips, and tricks to make you a better rider through learning. And as usual, we've got Brett Tax with us. Brett is an accomplished motorcycle instructor as well as motorcycle traveler. Brett, once again, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me back. Another episode of Rider Skills, and I'm pretty stoked about this one because I think a lot of people can relate to this. We're talking about hill starts. You know, it's it's a great topic. I just this week had two people call asking about training, and that was the one thing they said. I just I, we're, I'm struggling to get started on a hill, so. What a fantastic time to to come out with this topic. Well, it is kind of unnerving, isn't it, for a lot of riders to sit on a hill because the last thing you want to do on a motorcycle for most people is to go backwards. Absolutely. And and it's they're such big bikes and they're so heavy, it can be so overwhelming. And and as we've talked so many times, our traction is limited, you know, on all these big adventure bikes. And getting started on a hill was a real um it's a real situation, something that we all end up with, whether it's planned or unplanned. So what are we going to learn today? Well, I think we ought to talk. One is uh, there's two different types of stops. You know, there's there's the one where you plan to stop on a hill because you're stopping to help a friend or another rider or you're stopping because you want to take pictures. And let's face it, if you're traveling, some of these hills are very long. They're not just a little short hop. 
And so there's planned stops and then there's the unplanned stop, you know, the one where you just don't make it or somebody falls down in front of you or something occurs where you just have to stop unplanned. And there are two different, um, two different approaches to these in my mind. Okay. Well, the planned stop is, is probably, I think, the easiest to get the, our head around to begin with. Let's start with that one. Yeah. And the big thing with a plan stop is the strategy. And I see this often with riders who stop to help another rider along the way. And one rider falls down and they just come up and just randomly stop behind him. The rider that gets stuck there on the way and then the guy that stops to help, he's stuck. And it's really just paying attention to what's going on and going, okay, if I'm going to stop, what's going to give me my best chance to get going? And sometimes it's going to the top of the hill and walking back down to help. And other times it's just trying to find that spot where there's a little bit of level ground or looking for that perfect traction where it's, it's nice and a hard surface, but just don't randomly stop. Know that there's, you're looking for something to give you the best chance to get going again. Now we have talked before about uh, turning around on a hill. So obviously if you can't get going again, you're going to use that tactic of turning around on the hill. But what we're talking about is actually pulling away. So um, we, we got a bunch of surfaces that you want to talk about. What are we starting with? Well, there's actually four that kind of jump out at me, and that's the the large rock, not the gravel, but the large boulder-type rock. And that seems to be a, a really, really difficult one for a lot of people. There's the the hills when you go up and you've got mud, and that's going to be a little different. There's always the sand, and sand is a unique one. And then there's the hard pack or... Um, hard pack gravel, hard pack dirt, uh, street, and where you, your traction is really quite good, but you know stalling is still a concern for a lot of riders. So I think if we try uh, hit those surfaces, we're going to hit the most common ones for sure. Okay, well you're, you're talking about plans. Would you sum that up and just say that you know it's it's all about thinking ahead, thinking about where you're going to stop, or do you have more to add to that? Well, you know, I, I think the plan starts at the bottom of the hill, you know, before you even start going because. It, you don't want to end up with an unplanned stop. So if you come, you know, come up behind another guy that's going up the hill and you're right behind him and he gets stuck, you haven't left your, yourself any, any time to figure out how to go around them or how to find a spot to stop to come back and help them. And so the plan stops start at the bottom of the hill. You should always be looking way up the hill so you know exactly what kind of surfaces are going to come up on you, uh, where you might want to stop and divert if you need to stop. You know, where are you going to go if somebody's coming down the hill and they and they take part of your 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 intended path of travel to go through? So it's really getting the vision up the hill as well. You mentioned stopping at um, to get uh, a picture or something like that when you're traveling. What would be your your approach? You're on a dirt road. You've got a beautiful view there that you want to stop at. The road's steep. Where are you going to stop? What I start doing is looking for anything that has a level, like a like a little bit of a dip. So as I roll into it, my back tire is going to go forward at a flat angle and then start moving up the hill again. That way I can get some forward momentum uh, before I actually have to ascend. The other thing, other places I look is if it's a narrower trail, I go up towards the edges or even off of the trail just slightly. Because often the as the trail decays and things get stirred up, they drop down to the lowest point. And that's where you end up with your, your larger rock and your sand. And if it's raining, that's the deeper mud area. So I start looking up on the edges as well. For me, the most common mistake I see with people is they just get in a hurry. You know, they, they don't take the time to go, is it realistic for me to keep going? You know, is, if it's a super deep sand hill, you may just need to turn around and, and go back down. 
But the other one that I see people do is they, they get the revs up correctly on the motor so they're not stalling the motor and they'll start slipping the clutch or using the friction zone or gray zone or whatever anybody wants to call that. But they start slipping that clutch and the bike starts to creep forward just ever so slightly and they get all excited and they let the clutch out more. And next thing you know, they're spinning, they've lost traction. And it's that patience of just going, if I'm creeping forward at just no speed per miles per or per kilometers per hour, just barely moving, that may be all the traction you have. And if you put any more down, you get that spin. You're always talking about slipping the clutch, yet I think in most people's mind is you don't slip the clutch. It's probably the thing you learn when you first learn to drive a standard. You know, you got to get off that clutch. Well, and that's, and that's exactly very much true. And we've talked about this over and over and over that the, almost all the motorcycles on the market today with, uh, with few exceptions, the, the clutches are bathed in oil. And so the oil helps dissipate the heat. It pulls the heat away from these multi-plate clutches and that helps protect them. They're extremely durable. You know, one of the, the more common exceptions is the, the older BMWs with a single plate dry clutch. But even those, you can smell them and just stop and let them cool off. But they'll take a, quite a bit of abuse as well before there's any significant long-lasting problems. So we, we've got to get out of that mindset that we're not allowed to slip the clutch. And I think the other thing too is when you're doing that is the uh, the feeling of wanting to grip those handlebars. You know, as soon as you pull away, it's like the hill's steep, you're going up, you want to grab a hold, which means getting off the clutch, grabbing the bar. Well, and not only that, but the over-rev, you know, we, we have to have a slight over-rev on the throttle so we don't stall the bike. And some of the riders really spin the motor up because they're so concerned about stalling it. And you do have to have enough to do this, but it, it should match the clutch. So as you start to over-rev and you start slipping it, you just increase the revs a little bit more so you don't get a stall as you slip a little bit more. But when you go a very high over rev, then you're, of course you're, you're spinning those clutches a lot faster against the motor and that's more likely to cause damage as well. So the more skill you get, the more practice you get at this where you're matching that over rev with the, the forward momentum, the better off you're going to be. So you're saying rev it up a, a, to, a, to a certain amount and then use the clutch for your throttle, really? Exactly. And normally on the street, you know, we, we kind of increase the throttle as the clutch is coming out and it's very smooth altogether. But on these hill starts, it's, you really kind of have to turn it up and put some, you know, an extra 500,000 RPM on that motor before you start slipping it. And then as it starts to stall back down, you increase it back up. But the idea isn't to have it at 5,000 RPM. And we're talking about spinning it up to maybe 2,000 or, or 2,500 RPM at the most. And then trying to maintain that same RPM as the clutch comes out until we get out and moving. What about our body position? Ah, you know, this is a... Uh, Gee, body position, that, there's, it's not important at all. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, the, the whole idea here is, is getting traction. That's our problem. We don't have any traction on this hill, and that's why things are spitting around. And this, again, comes to one of the common errors, and this does tie into body position. You have a buddy come to help you, and they run up behind you, and they grab a hold of the back of the bike, and they start pushing up the hill with you. And what they're really doing is lifting up that back suspension or the back of the bike, and they're taking the weight off the back wheel. That's exactly the opposite we need in most of these hill start situations. There are exceptions for that. And the same thing was with the body is we want weight going down on that back tire. So 
one of the things I teach people is to slip as far back on that seat as possible. And if there's no panniers, I mean, you're actually kicking your feet out past the, the back axles. So you're on your tippy toes because you don't really need to hold the bike up. They, they have their own balance for the most part. And then I lay my upper body down uh, towards the tank. So I'm, it's almost like I'm laying down on the bike. And what this does is put as much of the weight over the back axle as I can get. And by moving my body down, I reduce the, uh, the likelihood of that front end coming up because as we start moving, if you, especially if it's very steep hill, if it bounces up over a sharp edge or a rock, then that front end can kind of come up in the air some. It probably won't endo on you, but it, w- it can come up in the air and then you don't have as much control. So it's really about getting the weight on the back. In fact, that partner, if they were to walk up and actually press down on that back rack, in most situations, that's all that's needed to get you going. Dare I say that you're moving the center of gravity downward as you lay on your bike? You're, you're, you're changing the, the topple point. You know, if you, if you have a, uh, a stick and you put a stick in the ground and you take a, a heavy ball and you put that ball on top of that stick and you tap it, 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 it's much easier to fall over. If you move that same weight down the stick, you pop a hole in it and you slide it down towards the bottom, you'll find that the stick is much more balance. And that's the same thing we're doing. We're just trying to get our weight low. So it does not tip as much. So how long do we hold that body position for? Until you can get up on the pegs. So as you know, I'm a huge advocate of getting up on the foot pegs as quickly as possible when you want to have maximum control of the bike. And so what you'll do is you lay down on the bike and as the bike starts to move, your feet come up to the pegs and then you, you quickly stand. And the quicker you can get on those pegs and stand when you're, as you're lifting your body, you're putting downward force on the pegs and that's putting downward force to the wheels that are looking for as much traction as possible. And that's that whole pounds per square inch thing we've talked about, um, on inside conversations multiple times, we're trying to get that extra pounds per square inch. So getting up on those pegs as quick as possible. And standing on the pegs is the absolute best position, isn't it? I mean, you're just, you, the bike reacts so much faster. You're, you're just in control rather than sitting on the seat. Yeah. It, and we've gone in pretty in depth on what it takes to why we stand and how we move around. It's not just standing that makes a difference, but that is the command position. That is the position that gives you the most control. So that's starting off on a, a loose surface. How is mud different than that? Well, mud's different because like sand, you, you just may not have any option for forward motion. So mud is one of those where you really have to look at the ground and go, okay, how am I going to get out of this? If I'm packed up tight, I've got to move my tire either back. And generally you have to go back down the hill a little bit. So if you look behind you, if you're in mud, there's often some kind of a pack surface or hard surface or a rock embedded in the mud. And what you want to do is back down the hill just enough where you can get that tire onto one of these better surfaces. And that way, as you get moving forward, the same thing, you get this creep and you can start walking yourself up the hill. But if your tires are packed and it's clay, the only way to get up that hill may be just to turn it around, go to the bottom and then take another run at it when you actually have proper momentum. You know, just like sand, that's very often the case with sand as well. What about spinning it up at that point? You know, if you've got knobbies and you, you think you may be able to get traction, is it worthwhile to, you know, get off the clutch quickly in this case and spin that rear wheel up? You know, the, the spinning the back tire is very seldom 
a beneficial thing. And if it is, it's usually when it's spinning very, very, very slow. If it starts going very fast, there's no paddle effect. It's just polishing the ground and packing the, the knobs or packing the traction up with, with all this muck. So generally, as you start to move forward, if you get a little bit of a slip, that's when you buffer the slip back out using that blending and control technique we've talked about where the you're using the throttle and balancing the throttle and the clutch and the brakes and all these things together. But if you feel that start to slip, you've got to buffer the power off just a little bit with a clutch. Don't disengage it or you lose all forward momentum. But you buffer it off to slow that wheel spin so you can get back down and it can actually grab things and paddle. And so the slower the spin or the least amount of slip, the better off you are. If it's spinning, there's no traction. And, and one thing that I find when you're spinning going up just about any surface, that it, it's very erratic. It puts you all over the place. You know, the rear wheel spinning, it's sliding back and forth, and you tend to bounce up the hill. And this is where the, the rider technique really needs to be good. Because even with the modern traction control systems that are coming in, they really they really struggle with these, these kind of surfaces with mud and with these big chunky rocks and this deep sand. They're just not quite there. They can't see what's going on. They can't anticipate what's happening because it's just a computer that's been programmed. This is where that rider needs to shut things off and be able to, to manage that power manually and to discover how that slip occurs and how to get that traction back. So is sand any different than mud? Well, sand, sand is different in the fact that you're more likely going to have a paddle effect. If you do have large knobs, you may be able to push sand out behind you to get forward momentum. And sand's generally not going to pack in the knobs like, um, like, um, like the mud does. You know, the mud can pack up and then all of a sudden you're just sitting on a slick. But the thing to pay attention to with sand is where are you trying to get? If, are you, if you're really deep, soft stuff, you may not be able to do anything. But just like on the other hill, if you look behind you, if you can find hard pack sand or the edge of it, you may be able to back down six inches, a foot, even five feet and find that more solid pack surface and then get your forward motion. The harder packed sand can be a very good traction surface. It's just that really deep, loose, like beach sand that, that gets us in so much trouble. Now, out of the, the four things, we've got the one left, and that's hard pack. Now, I, I guess this has um, hard pack can, can also be um, sort of looked at as road riding as well, as we, we talked about being on a, a steep hill and stopping on, a, on a, just a regular public road. When I'm thinking hard pack, I'm thinking hard pack dirt, hard pack gravel roads, just something where you know a very consistent hard pack surface or pavement for that matter. In fact, one of the, the gentlemen that called me this week asking about how to start on the hill has an upper and a lower drive uh, parking lot. And he doesn't want to park in the lower parking lot at his house because he doesn't want to go up the hill, even though it's, it's asphalt. You just keep stalling it. It's not uncommon, is it? I mean, it, with cars, it's the same thing. When you learn to drive, take any new driver out that's learning to drive a standard, hills are terrifying because you've got that moment where you, you have to get off the brakes and get onto the gas and you, you don't want to let the clutch out too fast to stall it. There's a lot going on there and, and there's sort of a lot at stake. And this is, I think, where most of the riders are getting in trouble is they, they're too separate on the controls. And as you know, in the, in the adventure camps and even the, the backcountry training tours that, that I do, you know, we work with this a lot. And blending of the controls is one of those key factors that we have to work into the training. And this is where the rider now has to work the throttle the front brake and or rear brake and the clutch all at the same time and still have stability on the ground. And 
for people that are first learning or struggling, I usually recommend the front brake. That way they can have both feet on the ground. They feel a little more stable. And, you know, some of these bikes, the, the riders are on their tippy toes to begin with. So that's already intimidating. But to do this, it's pretty easy. You, you use two brakes or, or one brake on the front uh, on the front brake. And then with the remaining fingers, you can turn that throttle up and do that slight over rip we talked about slowly ease into the power and you'll feel the front of the bike almost start to compress. You can feel the back trying to push the bike. That's the time to release the brake. And if you're doing this right, if you release the brake at that moment, the bike doesn't actually move forward at all. You're just putting enough power to the back tire so it doesn't roll backwards. You're balancing, right? You're sort of balancing the power with the braking. Exactly. You're just giving a play a way to hold the bike in place without using the brakes. And that's the first step. And once you're off that brake, then it's just increasing power and easing out that clutch so that you can move up the hill. And, and generally on, on a hard pack or street, you don't have to get up on the pegs because there's so much traction there. What you're really trying to do is not roll backwards and not stall it. Am I wrong to look at what we've talked about here, listen to what we've talked about here and think that the, uh, the key here is learning to slip your clutch? It's really about managing not just the clutch. Yes, that's a key. But it's also managing this blending with the throttle and often the front brake. Because some of these other situations, you may be holding on the front brake just so you don't don't slide backwards down the hill. So getting those three controls all working together is what you're really working towards. Okay, what about those hills that you come to with those large, I know you call them baby head rocks, those, those good uh, what, ostrich-sized boulders or even slightly larger than that, I guess. What about those hills? Yeah, these, I, I really like them. They're, they're a lot of fun. I like the challenge. But these are the ones that really um, can get people in trouble because it feels so unstable. You start moving and that front end is knocking back and forth over these rocks. And the, every time your, your tire comes up and over one of these rocks, it, it ends up in the air and it can free spin. I've seen this with auto clutches, people that run them in dirt bikes, and they have a heck of a time because that every time that wheel comes off one of these big uh, boulder rocks, it, it starts to free spin, hits the ground, and it's got full throttle and they go all over the place. And this is one where you really have to detect that movement and getting up on those foot pegs immediately is so, so, so critical because it's already a very uncomfortable situation for most riders to ride across this baby head type rock. And this one in particular, and I guess all of them really, uh, you've told me this before about having to clear the path. I, you know, I, I was just doing a, a video shoot last week on riding up hills and, and hill starts. And even before I did that, I stopped because some of the hills I look at and I go, gosh, you know, that looks like, I'm pretty sure I could do that. But if I'm not 100% in, especially on a, on a bike, and I was fully loaded that day with hard panniers, and of course they increase our risk of injury, so I don't want to take any chances, I got off the bike and walked up the hill, and I'm not, I'm not shy to go and kick out a couple of the large boulders. But once I pick my path and I'm like, this is where I want to go, I have no problem just kick, kicking a few things out to make sure that when I go, I'm going to make it the first time, you know, and I'm not going to take that extra risk. It's just not worth it. And you were saying before, when you're, even when you're in mud, for instance, that if you back up to the back of the track and scoop out the front, you know, to make more of a ramp, that you have a far higher success rate. Especially when people start digging holes. And this is, you know, when we're, when we're new, we can't always detect when that back wheel starts to break free until it's going for a while. And 
And so when you start spinning that tire, you're just digging a hole. And then next thing you know, you're, you're buried and you're trying to get over this big lip in front of it. And that's, yeah. So this is the time to get off. Even if, and on a hill, you're probably not going to be able to put a side stand down and please everybody that's listening, it's okay to lay your bike down on its side. It doesn't <laughs> mind, you know, it's just not the big, that big a deal. If you can't get your, your side stand out. Yeah. So just lay the bike down on the high side of the hill so that it's easier to pick up and, and get off the bike and chisel out the front of that little ditch you just dug out so that you're not trying to come over this sharp ramp. And since you're off the bike anyways, clear the rocks out of that front tire and, and make sure that you have the rest of the path. Or, or if nothing else, we talked about getting out of mud when we were stuck on flat ground and where we lay the bike down and we, we shove things underneath that back tire so we have traction. There's no reason you can't do that on a hill either. Just lay the bike down. Get yourself set up so that when you get the bike back upright, you can get going and you do it right the first time. Save the energy. Don't put yourself with unnecessary risk. Okay, so as a recap then. All right, so let's let's try to take all of this chat that we've had and, and simplify it you know, into something that people understand. One is it's okay to slip the clutch. You know, over rev just slightly so you're not, not stalling the bike and it's okay to slip the clutch. The best position to be in command of the bike is to be up on the pegs as soon as possible and try to get that weight onto the back tire. Keep your eyes at the top of the hill. If your eyes aren't looking past the top of the hill, and we didn't talk about this much, but it's always there, you're not going to go any farther than where you're looking. So if you're looking at the rocks on the hill, the ruts on the hill, you're going to hit every single one of them. So keep those eyes up. And like everything that we, we talk about here, don't wait until you're fully loaded on a trip to try to learn how to do this, you know, go out and take the chance to, or, or the opportunities to, to find a hill and to practice this and, and learn it. So when you're on your trip, it's not all of a sudden uh, a challenge that you're going to be risking, you know, injury or damage. I guess really you, you want to try this after you get the hang of running it unloaded, you want to load it, don't you? And try it, you know, and you know, we were chatting, you know, about some of the stuff that, that I do. And when we do these, these BDR training tours where I'm training riders how to do this stuff, I have a very wide variety of people coming to me. Everything from people that rent a motorcycle with us because they don't own one, they're trying it out, to guys that have quite a bit of experience. And one of the ways I I get people to do this, and this is what I'm going to recommend to the listeners here, is you want to do this in steps so you're successful, but you need to work all the way to the point where you don't have success. And that's where your, your threshold of learning begins. That's where your learning really is pushed. And so here's what I'm going to recommend to the riders is, is do the same thing I do when we do our training. Go to a hill and run your front wheel up onto a hill and keep the back wheel on the lower part so it's not actually on the hill yet. Stop the bike completely and then start from there. And if you're successful, then you want to ride up on the hill and just get onto the bottom of the hill. And so both wheels are going uphill and then do the same thing. Start. And if you've got that one down, now go up a little steeper part of the hill. If you've got that good, now go to a part that has some gravel. And you want to just slowly increase the challenge little by little until you find your threshold, your skill limit. And then stay on that part until you perfect it. And when you get that perfected, now find something more difficult on the hill. You know, more difficult steepness or traction. And this allows you to do it very methodically without risking injury, without damaging your bike. And, you know, if you're riding, if you're doing this with friends, 
everybody gets to do it at their skill level. So your friend may be halfway up the hill, you know, sitting in a rut and that's where he's practicing and you're on the bottom just trying to make sure you're not stalling from the start. When you're teaching this stuff and people are using your rental bike, do you go through a lot of clutches? We don't. In fact, uh, I think a, that's a had, testament right there for the durability of the, the wet clutch, isn't it? it? It really is. And, and I'm now on an old oil head on the dry clutch. And, but one of my other instructors who he's my right hand guy and he wrote an oil head adventure for years and years and years and years, did crazy things on that thing. And he bought a spare clutch cause he was sure he had burned it up. And he actually gave me that spare clutch. <laughs> and this is after he had it for about six years and just did horrible things to that bike. And it, it's extremely durable. And that was a dry clutch. So these wet clutches, they're even better. Well, the one thing about learning hill starts and improving our skills there is it'll certainly give us confidence all around for riding. It, it's, it's one of the, the best things you can do to learn how to cross over and blend controls, our hill starts. And if you can do this without spinning the back tire, you know, it, this same skill set crosses over to everything from riding in sand to riding through mud. Uh, you know, it just, it is the, one of the, the core foundation skill sets to being a truly expert rider. Brett, always a pleasure to have you on. I always learn. I love coming on the show and I love sharing with all the listeners and I can't wait to do our next topic. Brett Tax is the lead instructor at PSSOR. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you like what we're doing here and you want to help the show out, there's a bunch of different ways you could do it, actually. But one of the first and foremost ways is this is built on a a sort of a platform, or at least an idea, of some advertising and donations to make the whole thing work. So if you can do it and you're interested, drop by the website, click on the donate button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you, our way of showing our appreciation. And and it sort of goes on up from there. We also are are signed up with Patreon, which allows you to do monthly donations if you want to do that. And then there's some certain incentives there as well as the the stickers and then some special episodes that you'll get actually from from doing it monthly. But uh, as well, if anything, $50 or more will get you a mention on our Raw show. So we could certainly use the help and we certainly appreciate it. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. See you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 